The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. For better or worse, the colonial era was a time free of the burden of constant knowledge. 250 years ago, you couldn't instantly answer a question by simply Googling it. Nor could you learn everything you wanted to know about a person by looking them up on Facebook. Some people will call it a simpler time. Others will call it the Dark Ages. Regardless of where you fall, there's no denying it was a time when deception was a much trickier game. Con artists could weave dramatic stories their victims had little means to fact-check. They could move through the world without leaving a digital footprint in their wake. But curiosity and gossip are timeless activities, both of which can spoil even the most well-constructed lie in an instant. Hello and welcome to Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Berguin Wright House and Gardens here in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Berguin Wright Presents we are cracking open the essential local history text, Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region, published in 1956 by famed historian Louis T. Moore. Each episode, we take a chapter from the book and interrogate the fact and fiction of that story as told by Lewis. What's true, and what's fabrication for the sake of a good story? This season, we're going to get to the bottom of why these stories have survived for centuries in some cases, and what they say about the Cape Fear today. This episode, we're hunting down a colonial con woman, who is said to have duped the residents of the Lower Cape Fear and North Carolina in a scheme that had royal implications. When she arrived in the colonies in 1771, Sarah Wilson was a prisoner sold into indentured servitude to a Mr. William Duval. Pretty quickly, she escapes this situation and cooks up an elaborate story as she hits the road. In Lewis T. Moore's telling, she informs colonists she meets that she is Caroline Matilda, the sister 
of King George III. Other versions of this story say that she claimed to be the sister of Queen Charlotte, his wife. Having no means to be sure that she did in fact descend from one of the branches of the royal family tree, and not looking to disrespect her if her story was true, Sarah Wilson was welcomed into the lap of luxury in every town she visited. In exchange for hospitality of the highest sort, she willfully promised government positions, military posts, and anything her host may have desired. She also used the disconnectedness of her time to scheme money out of her marks, claiming the weeks-long communication turnaround with London had allowed her financial coffers to run dry. Each community that embraced her strengthened her story. Each time someone believed her, others felt less compelled to ask questions. Until someone did, and her house of cards came crumbling down. So, who was Sarah Wilson? How did she find herself in a position to impersonate a member of the royal family? And what happens when you're caught being brazen enough to bask in the reputation of that royalty? We'll answer those questions and more on this episode of Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore. Joining the show today is Matt Arthur, Professional Development Manager with the American Association for State and Local History. Thank you for coming on the show, Matt. Well, thanks for having me. Well, we are talking about a very exciting story today, um, one that I know has been very popular when people have read Lewis T. Morris books, but one that is not just Wilmington-based, one that really has a foothold in several places in North Carolina, and that is this concept of a colonial con woman in Sarah Wilson. And and so I'm very excited to get into this. You have some experience with telling her story and working with it at your former place of employment, which was Tryon Palace in New Bern. But first, before we even get into the actual legend, the actual story of Sarah, I'm curious, when did you first hear of her and what did you hear? I honestly stumbled across her when I was asked to do a, a talk for, like it was a local historical society, and they wanted something that people hadn't done before and i was it was march and so women's history and so i was looking for i was like does it need to be north carolina they're like no just general colonial stuff and so i found um two different sarahs uh one of them i was a lady named sarah who uh passed as a man um and actually i believe on occasion like worked as a doctor she had fought at the battle of culloden and all of this sort of thing. And she was mostly in the Northern colonies. And then when I was studying up her story, I came across a different Sarah pulling a different kind of con and stumbled across Sarah Wilson. And so I ended up turning that talk into a tale of two Sarahs, but uh, Sarah Wilson, because she had a story that was a little closer to home, people wanted to know more about. Yeah. You don't hear of a Royal imposter too often and someone who's brazen enough to do that at this time in history. And so it is a really fascinating story, but I think before, again, we step into that story, we have to set the scene for our listeners because I know a lot of people have read this story or have even heard of this story and you get to the point where she starts deceiving these local people and they kind of go, 
are these people just idiots? Like, how are they letting this woman do this to them in this time? But I think there's there's a chance to provide some context because it was easy to pull one over on someone in this time because there just weren't as many methods of fact-checking. There weren't as many avenues of communication. So what was it like in the colonial period to get information around? I mean, it's a lot slower. And I mean... <laughs> When you take into the fact that, like, nowadays you get a phone call and you're like, I don't recognize that number. Let me hop on Google real quick and, like, you know, trace the sucker down. There's not that going on back then. It's not possible. Um, if you have problems with, a, you know, your credit and you need to start a new life all over, you just move. Um, on top of that, you know, it takes weeks to get across the ocean. Um, so any news that's coming from, you know, Great Britain uh, is... It takes a while. We know that uh, Governor Josiah Martin, at one point in time, we have some letters between his dad and his brother. Now, his dad lived in Antigua, and his brother was a member of parliament. And they're talking about how Josiah had visited his brother and was heading back to the colonies and was heading to New York. And he ended up hitting bad weather, and it was 11 weeks, um, which is insanely long. Um, but, I mean, usually it's like, you know, let's count three weeks, maybe four, something like that. But, I mean, it could get... When you have that and people traveling by horse as your fastest mode or river, you know, you're talking at least days to get a head start on information. So it's easy to kind of pop in and pop out. It's a lot of dead air in a way that people yeah. can kind of live in in that moment. And that's certainly what Sarah Wilson is going to take advantage of. She's going to take advantage of this time when people, one, were, were very tied to the structure of life, which was in service of the crown. And so when you are brave enough to say not only are you related to it you're that close to it yeah and i mean she's really good at capitalizing on people's hopes and dreams you know there was never a royal visit to you know the 13 colonies and so wanting to be that you know that close and be a member of the peerage and all that stuff you know you've got someone who's willing to kind of play up on that then yeah people are willing to buy into that fantasy what do we know about sarah wilson and where she came from and how she got into this situation in the grand scheme of things, there's a lot we still don't know. She is still a lady of international mystery. Um, she spun stories, and then there were people who spun stories about her stories. Um, and so you get a lot of historical telephone that's going on here. We know her name was Sarah Wilson. One of the main backstories, and it's one that gets quoted in you know the material that we're referring to today, is that she had been a lady-in-waiting or a, a servant to a lady-in-waiting of Queen Charlotte and that sort of thing, and that she was caught stealing, you know, precious jewels and dresses and was supposed to be executed and was sentenced to transportation. But someone went and looking through, I mean, that would obviously make some sort of stir. And there's, it's, it's quiet. And when you look at the court records, they do find that there is a Sarah Wilson who in some sort of major house that was, not involved with the royalty, but kind of loosely associated with, um, was caught stealing, but it was more like pulling a Jean Valjean and stealing some bread. And so she is sentenced to transportation, but even in her backstory that's been spun, it's a little bit more glamorous than what it was. I mean, we she was a servant in a household and probably more of a kitchen servant than even what everyone in the period wanted to believe when they found out what was real. Well, and, and transportation at this time is 
being sent to the colonies, being sent away from where you've committed this crime, being sent in a way out of the the lap of luxury, the 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 proper England, and being sent to its offshoot in the colonies. And so that's how she arrives here, I imagine, as punishment for whatever crime she committed in whatever house she was in. And, you know, to cover the passage, you know, they're selling your services off as an indentured servant. And so she goes from being this free woman to being an indentured servant to a Mr. William Duvall in Maryland. Who is William Duvall? I don't know. He is the, the guy who purchased, as far as I know, he was no one in particularly special, but a lot of times individuals who are sentenced to transportation, um, someone has to pay for the ship's passage for the, you know, the convict. And so when they come here, we're going to put you up on the auction block and we're going to sell you for seven years to work for someone, and that money is actually going to go to cover that charge. And so William Duvall pays for her services, and she decides, thanks, no, um, this is not what I want to do. And she takes off from day one. She's a convict on the run, and uh, there are ads that follow after her. It doesn't necessarily, I don't know if it was Duvall himself who goes hunting after her, or he hires someone else. But you can find newspaper ads that describe her saying that she is doing this. She's playing, you know, the sister of the queen. She's her real name, Sarah Wilson. She's got dark hair. She's got a blight in one eye, um, all of these sorts of things. So you can find every so often you can find a snip of basically a runaway ad that's chasing her through the colonies. And it seems like she may have gone from Maryland up north a little bit and then starts working her way down. Well, it's very interesting because regardless of what version of the story you're reading, she's incredibly clever. As you said, she's able to pick up on the hopes and the dreams and desires of the people here in the colony, but also to notice what these colonists were wanting. They were wanting some type of tangible connection to the royal crown, something they weren't getting with the ocean between them. And she's picking up on this idea of being able to maneuver through an area and leave in just enough time before people start asking too many questions and start sending too many letters asking who this woman is and why she's here. And so once she gets here, do we know where she arrives? Do we know uh, where she goes? Or is it all part of this kind of legend where people are kind of telling it from their own perspective? It's a lot of, it's a lot of legend. It's a lot of, well, this is what I heard. And this is, she, I mean, she doesn't just go from, you know, Maryland and start, you know, head straight to North Carolina. We know she was in Virginia. Basically, you can check most of the <laughs> Georgia's a little too far south, but you can check pretty much the other 12. And she made some stop there at some point in time on this grand tour. And you can't help but think that she was probably having the time of her life in the middle of all of this. Well, yeah. Live it up while you can. Right. I found it interesting that in, you know, you know, this book, you know, they're talking about she passed herself off as the sister of King George because most of the period documents that you see um, say that she was passing herself off as the estranged younger sister of Queen Charlotte. Now, exactly what name she's using keeps changing as well, but Queen Charlotte was, um, she had some younger brothers, but she was the youngest sister of them all. So, Well, and that is interesting too because I've read accounts that do veer pretty far from Louis T. Moore's account, who is tying her to the king. As you said, tying her to Queen Charlotte is where I've seen it a lot, because the king's sister, who was a very real woman, by this point in 1771, 
had been married off and was the queen of Denmark and Norway. And so if Louis T. Moore's version is correct, you would have a queen coming through, not only apart from any type of royal escort or any type of pomp and circumstance, she's also asking people for money. She's asking to be put up in you know room and board. And so it does seem odd that Louis T. Moore places her on that side of the family tree with the king when so many others have placed her with the queen. But again, it makes for such an interesting story because by 1771, if she is arriving in North Carolina, whether it's in Wilmington or New Bern, she is going to be welcomed by a higher class. You know, there's not going to be the random person on the street that's going to be offering her shelter. In Wilmington, that would be the Bergwin Wright House, which is what I work for. This this kind of epicenter of culture and status and wealth and influence. And so it would almost certainly be that if, if she's coming through Wilmington, by 1771, the house is operational. John Bergwin, the man who built it, is already hosting guests. That is going to be the place where she would have been entertained. And I imagine that's the case for your former place of employment, Triumph Palace, because I know that you all have used her story. So what do we know about her visit or any tangible evidence to her in New Bern? She's a whisper, honestly. Um, I have been trying to go through as many letters of Governor Martin, because she would have been here during Governor Martin's administration, and see if he... He likes to talk a little bit about what's going down with his family. The Martin family was very connected, and we have a lot of personal letters between them all. So you get a lot of family drama and a lot of bragging and one-upsmanship within the family. Um, And I love it. But I keep on thinking maybe someday I'll see that, you know, he was hosting the Marchioness de Valdegrave, which was one of the main, you know, titles that Sarah was using. And I haven't found it yet. I keep hoping. But what we found is that in the first history book of North Carolina, pretty much, that was written, which uh, was written by Francois Xavier Martin, that he mentions that she came and he says that Governor Martin threw a ball at the palace. And you would think that would make newspaper stories, but there's not a lot of 18th century North Carolina newspapers that have survived. We've got a lot of gaps there. So seeing that, we when we have our, our holiday program, our candlelight program, um, we always have a different storyline. And so we, this was the first time this past December we brought this story back. We had done it about five years before. It's been, everyone loves a fake princess, apparently. It was our most popular storyline. So we decided to bring it back. And everybody just loves it and eats it up with a spoon. And, and you know, I feel like people kind of have that same mystique and awe of there's a princess in New Bern as much as there would have been back then. But yeah, it's basically two lines in a history book. And we know that while... Francois wasn't there. He knew the people who were living in town at the time who had the connections who would have known. And so it seems like a really random thing to just kind of make up and throw in there. It's so true because as we've said repeatedly throughout this season, as we've gone through the chapters of Lewis T. Moore's book, these stories have to have some basis in fact, because this is such an intricate web to weave, to talk about her, to talk about the things that he mentions that she does in Wilmington. And the same would be true for Newburn to to have this idea of someone coming to town and not only being such an interesting figure but to then be hosted by the most prominent man in town that is that's unmistakable you're correct newspapers would certainly have written about it if only we had all those newspapers still now one thing i do want to ask louis t moore says she comes in with a huge carriage she has this grand entrance 
And then people, you know, suddenly flock to her and they start welcoming her and giving her things and all this stuff. But in his version, he says that she is Lady Susanna. Uh, he actually calls her Wilmington's Lady Susanna Carolina Matilda. But you mentioned that she goes by a few things. So what other titles was she giving people that we know of? The main title she has is the Marchioness de Voldegrave. But the no- names that she uses tend to go around. I've seen Susanna. Um, the one that one of her main ones seem, tends to be uh, she would be, you know, Her Serene Highness uh, Sophia Carolina our Carolina Matilda, the Marchioness de Valdegrave. So not a mouthful at all. Not at all. Not at all. Nothing pretentious. Just real easy. Just call me Sue. (laughs) That Sophia Carolina Matilda seems to be, and that actually does combine a couple of different sisters of Queen Charlotte together. Um, So, I mean, she obviously had done some of her homework and knew that people would probably be familiar with some of it, but not expect any of that. Um, And I just recently... I, there's another thing I want to hunt down is found out that she wasn't always traveling alone. Apparently there was a con man who decided to play her betrothed um, in, in a couple of places in like Pennsylvania. I think I want to hunt it down a little bit more. I would love to be able to trace down like the grand tour of Sarah Wilson, but she was able to pull in people and, you know, okay, let's build this up. And, you know, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers situation. Um, they, they mentioned a lot that she was, we kept talking about, you know, I had a fight with my sister and so I've had to go and I'm estranged and I want to be joined back to her, but I left in such a hurry that I don't, I need some help. I need you to help put me up. I need you, I need a little bit here and I'll be sure to remember that kindness when my sister and I are back together and there's, there'll be titles and things like that. No, it's, it, and that's interesting because if you add even more to this con if you give more meat to the bone it's harder for people to cut away at it's harder for them to question and even in wilmington in in lewis t moore's version he says that her reason for needing money is the lack of communication with england that she hasn't been able to reach back to them in a few weeks they're going to be sending money they're going to be sending resources but until then she needs the help of the king's subjects in the colonies and they oblige her in so many ways. One of the, or really the, the main story that Lewis T. Moore shares in here is that while she's in Wilmington, she's being wined and dined, all these things. She's being, again, put in the lap of luxury, which is what people would have expected in England, but they're getting the chance to do this for a so-called royal family member, whatever side of the royal family she's on. And, and it says that she takes three men out to what is now Greenfield Lake here in Wilmington. And they go for a pleasant boat ride. And she's fascinated by the Spanish moss, the signature of Southern environment and culture. And she tasked these three men with climbing up three trees to grab her some so she can take it. Now, she's not considering the fact that these often have a lot of bugs, a lot of chiggers. And so it's not a pleasant part of the story if you really know the true history of Spanish moss. But She asked them to do this, and then they all eventually fall into Greenfield Lake. They all become sopping wet. She makes fun of them, and then she goes back and she tells all the people in town, and she's humiliated these three young gentlemen who think that she's courting them or they can court her. And they even, Louis T. Moore even says that these three men in the colonial town of Wilmington become known as the trios. Um, Three men, 
trios. It's very clever. And just like her story, these details, to put them in here, make this story seem plausible. Or it makes it seem very, very likely that this happens. But as you've been saying, we just don't know all of the details, all of these little things from all the places she would have gone. What do we know about her story as she continues to move about the colonies? As you said, she might pick up a passenger. She might pick up a, a fellow con a person. What do we know about her story as she is in the colonies longer? Because it seems from the tellings I've heard that people start to ask more questions. And then some of those questions are being answered. So from what I've been able to piece together, I don't, again, I want to see if I can ever create like a good timeline, but I think everyone's been looking at this for who finds out about her and she's elusive enough that there's nothing set in stone. But we know that she starts off in Maryland. Um, her services, you know, her time had been purchased by William Duvall. And it seems like she may have gone from Maryland up north a little bit and then starts working her way down. Um, one of my favorite ones is in... Virginia, I believe. There's one house she's staying at and someone who speaks German, which would have been Queen Charlotte's sister's native language. And he decides that he's just going to be super welcoming and like, you know, she obviously is speaking not her foreign, you know, her native tongue with English. You know, let me speak to you on, you know, the, the language your heart speaks. And he starts speaking German to her and she just goes, no, 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 no. We're here. We are in England. You know, we are a British colony. We speak English. I will speak English for you. And it says that after she left, he kind of realized she had no idea what he was saying to her in German. And so there were these little, like, the paint chips a little bit. You know, you find out it's not gold, it's brass um, in her story as it goes along. And uh, somehow after she leaves you know, Bern, Wilmington would be the way that it seems that she's traveling would have been the order. And she keeps heading south and Charleston, her luck runs out. She gets caught and they bring her back. Uh, they find her in Charleston. They bring her back. She starts working for Duvall again. And according to a couple of things that I found, she takes off again. She can't pull off the sister of the queen heist one more time. That con is gone. But she decides that she's going to take her own future into her hands again. And um, poor Mr. Duvall didn't get much for his money. No, he did not. And I have to imagine that as she is feeling the weight of this lie press upon her shoulders, she probably gets a bit more desperate. She probably gets a bit more um, erratic. She's probably moving more because Louis T. Moore, regardless of the things that don't line up with what you found here in his story, he says that she stays here for a few weeks. It seems like in some of these places she was staying a few weeks, just enough time to head out of town and move somewhere else. But you start moving farther away from the person that you're running from, the the lie, the life that you're running from. As you get down to Charleston, Charleston is a very large port at that time. Far more people are going to be down there, be able to ask questions and check things. And so I imagine that's probably one of the reasons why her luck ran out. Yeah, they're able to ask questions, check things. Duvall seems to start sending out um, the ads further and further and, you know, newspapers would, you know, when you're trying to make a weekly or a monthly, you know, we're talking early in the, the press cycle here. Um, it's not a 24 hour press cycle. And it wasn't uncommon for someone to get a newspaper from another area and, oh, well, that's something I can kind of cut and cut and paste basically. And so I, I've always wondered if she didn't like land there and people were like, really the queen's sister, how nice of you, Sarah. Um, because it doesn't, it seems like she hits Charleston and everyone basically is like, 
her luck runs out in Charleston and she's gone. And it would make sense. You know, the newspapers, the letters, you know, everybody knows everybody. It, it would have been the perfect wrong place for her to go at some point. It's a fascinating story, but it's built on an increasingly dangerous lie because yeah. you're going to have to continue to add things. As we said, adding, you know, potentially a con man to help weigh out your story, it's going to make it more irrefutable for people. And I imagine that's just very hard for you to keep up, especially as you can only run so far, you can only run so fast, and eventually word will travel. I think it's really fascinating that you've been able to find newspaper clippings and things that kind of chart her just a little bit. So it really shows that this was a real woman. This was a real lie. This was a real crazy mission she was on to dupe colonists just long enough for her to enjoy her life in the colonies. I, I can't imagine she had a very uh, sound end game in mind because you can't play royalty forever. No, I, I honestly, I think she probably knew from day one that she was on borrowed time. <laughs> But let's have fun as long as we can have fun with this. I mean, what's the worst that they're going to do? Make her work longer for Duvall that she's already managed to run away from once. And I love the fact that she ends up just disappearing into the mists of time. Like, there's a couple people who are like, this is what happened to her. We think. Most people agree that she ran away from Duvall a second time. Um, but there's period writing she captured everybody's mind and imagination that they started writing like novellas about her and like this is the real story and um it seems to be from some of those novellas that people start pulling the these these true facts about her life um uh, beforehand but they also say that like once the revolution comes around she ends up marrying a, a british dragoon and they both decide after the war to stay here in the colonies and that she just is a quietly nice married lady who does what all nice colonial era ladies do and just is invisible um, after that fact. Um, there's people who've gone, well, there's a grave for Sarah Wilson here, or this is the name of the dragoon she's supposed to marry. There's a grave here. But I don't think anybody really knows. I think she probably is very satisfied with herself, wherever she is now, um, with the fact that she has kept people guessing. Um, one of the things I've loved is the fact that this is something that captures someone's mind no matter when it happens. You know, she's the inventing Anna of of the 18th century. She's Anna Sorokin. She very much is. And you're probably right. She's probably very thrilled with herself because even though she was caught, the whole point was to be able to disappear. Now, she did it in a very grand way. She did it in a way that was bound to catch up with her. But in the grand scheme of things... She didn't want to be in servitude to someone. She'd already been deported from her country. She, in some telling, says that she brings over cabinets of beautiful clothes and jewels. I mean, all of this was going to catch up with you at some point, as I'm sure Anna would say, uh, in our own time. But Sarah Wilson seems to be a very brazen woman, and I have to imagine that some people saw her as kind of a folk hero. She is kind of flying in the face of royalty by playing the part of it especially on the cusp of a war where most of the people she's interacting with or a good chunk of the people she's interacting with are going to start revolting against the very people she's playing the part of. And so those novellas that you're talking about, I imagine they in a way celebrate her story and then pull those true facts. And that's how we know about it today. Yeah, she's she's the hero. And everybody I've met who's come across this story loves her. And the two young ladies from the 
different years that we've done this storyline for the palace, they have eaten up just being able to be Sarah. She's goals. Um, and, you know, what's wonderful is the costumer at the palace, Leslie Gagnon, is so talented. She found a painting of one of the many portraits of Queen Charlotte and copied that dress. And so it is, you know, they are wearing a dress that is inspired by this portrait of Queen Charlotte. So she's wearing that, you know, one of the telltale things that everyone seems to agree with is no matter what she escaped with, she escaped with a miniature of Queen Charlotte. And um, so that's one of the things that, uh, you know, on the neckline, we have that miniature like worked into the dress and those sorts of things. So we're able to put all of those little touches and details and it's just people get to step into that fantasy. <laughs> so what you're saying is Sarah Wilson got to travel with a fake ID at the time. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and why wouldn't royalty carry a picture of themselves? Makes sense. I I'm so glad we talked about this. You know, my last question is, what do you think her legacy is? Is it this folk hero of, of this time, this, you know, kind of period between the revolution or right before the revolution, when you do start to see the divisions? And she's kind of taking advantage of them. She's kind of traveling in those divisions and able to give herself quite a life before she's brought back into reality. I, I mean, I really think that's part of it. Part of it's part folk hero. Um, I have an eight-year-old daughter, and when she found out about this story, she's like, "I want to be her because she didn't follow the rules, and she made basically made the life that she wanted." So yeah, she's this folk hero, and she's this, even though she was here against her will, kind of the American dream of let me build my, the life that I want, um, even if it is a fairy tale that might end at some point in time. Um, so yeah, I think it's folk hero, the American dream before there's the American dream. Um, she's the the unwell-behaved lady. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. This was uh, such a fascinating talk, and I hope you do get to chart out the grand tour of Sarah Wilson one day. Uh, it sounds like the perfect backbone for a great book uh, and then a great adaptation of that book into a movie. Fingers crossed. Thank you so much for having me and letting me talk about one of my favorite 18th century things. Of course. That's what we love to do around here. Thank you, Matt. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Bergwin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, where we will explore the fact versus fiction in another chapter of Lewis T. Moore's Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Bergwin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at the Bergwin Wright House in Wilmington. Monday through Saturday, we give tours of the site that will expose you to a fascinating history of North Carolina in colonial America. And while you're there, you can also pick up a copy of Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region, which is now available in our gift shop. And be sure to follow the Bergwin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook and Instagram, for the latest on what we're doing at the site. As a nonprofit, this podcast and all the exciting projects done at the Bergwin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider making a donation, or better yet, join our membership program with exclusive perks and tours. 
All the money raised goes towards the further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site. For more information, visit our website in each episode's description or at bergwinwrighthouse.com. And thank you so much for your support. This podcast is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Durable Restoration Company for sponsoring the podcast this season. And we would also like to take a moment to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their continued support. See you next time on Bergwin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182.